Okay, welcome into this episode of Mythic Existence. Today we are going to be talking about Hermeticism, Gnosticism, and Alchemy. We'll discuss some of the precepts of Hermeticism and look at some of its seminal works, which include the Corpus Hermeticum. We'll journey to Egypt, where the Nag Hammadi scriptures rebirthed an interest in Gnosticism. And we will dive into alchemical thought, which permeates the history of both these philosophical inklings. So sit back and listen in to another great episode of Mythic Existence. So, as per usual, we probably have to start off with some definitions, because, um, I mean, there's some definitely new interest in these topics nowadays. Um, really, the work of Frances Yates back in the 60s, uh, she was a historian and a professor, was... I think kind of a jumping off point, especially from the academic study of of these topics. And as we'll see, I mean, the Nag Hammadi scriptures were only discovered in 1945. So Gnosticism is a relatively new thing that we're studying, at least from the perspective of those scriptures. Um, so I'm going to go kind of in order. I'm going to go Hermeticism first. We'll talk about that. Gnosticism second. All right, probably Gnosticism, I think, is going to be the last thing that we'll talk about in Alchemy Second. Uh, so I'll do my best to define those things and to allow you to kind of catch up if you don't really know what they are, or maybe you're, you know, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of different, uh, you know, levels of knowledge on these topics uh, in my listenership. But let's start with uh, Hermeticism. Which basically, her- Hermeticism is named after Hermes. And there's kind of a complicated history with this figure of Hermes. Hermes Trismegistus is really the, the patron of this art, but it's also associated with the uh, Hermes of the Greek uh, pantheon. And uh, basically, there was a lot of interplay between the Egyptians and the Greeks. Back in the time when a lot of this information was burgeoning, which the Hermetic text and the Gnostic text were, they were proliferating a lot around the first and third centuries is when AD is when they were getting written. So there was this stream where they sort of paralleled the rise of Christianity. But anyway, the the Egyptians had... Um, a god Thoth, who was the god of medicine and magic and alchemy um, and uh, building, basically, that, that they saw a lot of Hermes in, in Thoth. And so um, Hermes Trismegistus is sort of this kind of amalgamation character who, uh, I mean, he's attributed as the author of these texts, but I mean, that's, I don't, that's not the case. Uh, and that's one of the main problems. I'm kind of going, I'm, I'm skipping over this pure definition, but all of this information is, is important to know. Um, 
you know, the, this figure of Hermes, when the, the texts were being reintroduced in Europe around the 11th century, 11th, 12th century AD, they thought that Hermes was a historical figure like Moses and that um, the Hermetic texts were super, super ancient, but that was all actually due to a dating error. And it turns out that they were from the first to the third, third centuries AD. And, you know, if from the modern viewpoint, you know, it's pretty easy to tell that that's when they're from just based on the nature of the language. But they thought it was much more ancient and that Hermes was actually a contemporary of Moses. But um, it seems like the Hermes of these texts was probably multiple people, just individuals living um, in the Greco-Egyptian world during the first and third centuries. So what Hermeticism is, uh, in a sense, it's a philosophical religion. And sort of some of the main precepts are that there is an omnipresent mind that permeates the cosmos. And the hermetic, the, the, her, the hermetist develops their own perception of God. Um, and it's, it's, you kind of develop a perception of um, the God self and your relation to the cosmos, essentially. So hermeticism is... Uh, is a personal route to understanding your own divine nature is essentially what it is. Um, but then if you go further and I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's what it is at its core. And that's especially what it is today, but especially when it was beginning to get around it, there was a, um, there's a lot of lore relating to talismanic magic, astrology, um, and alchemy. And so it's a, it's a philosophy concerned with the nature of God and your connection to God and your connection to the magical existence, basically. Um, and so the, the aim of it is to have a personal experience of gnosis. And that's where we get the term Gnosticism is gnosis. And essentially what that word is, it, it mean, it's a Greek word that means knowledge. But um, it's it's an elevated knowledge. It's this this God knowledge, basically, um, or sort of more of like a divine or magical knowledge. And it's an experience of what's called the noose, is what the the Hermetists and the Gnostics called it. And uh, that's that's now there's a lot of writers writing about the noose fear, and uh, so noose is kind of um, a numinous experience. So it's a, a religious experience. Um, and the, they, they saw their concept of the noose and they equated it with the Christian logos. So this, uh, the, the word is essentially what the noose is. Um, in Hermeticism, there's ultimately no master the people must learn to be their own master. So this route is for um, a lot of people who don't like the dogmatism of traditional religion. Uh, and again, the, you, there's this stream of hermeticism that's been going on for about 2,000 years. And I mean, if you think about Christianity, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, um, it's, it's 
really ply it's it's flexible it's a changing thing you most people think that you know christianity has been the same from the very onset but it's really i mean in no way hasn't been one of the things that her hermeticists or hermetists believe is that there's no end to his existence that this is an eternal life and it springs forth from what they call the all um and so that's that's one of the, I mean that's one of the things I really like about these sort of philosophies is it it plays into what you know physics tells us about energy doesn't die it, it just changes from one form to another and it, once you so, start thinking of yourself as an energy then you know that that ego place sort of dissolves and you realize that you're just a amalgamation of atoms basically so i want to read a couple of passages from uh the corpus hermeticum is the the hermetic corpus the hermetic body of literature is basically what that means um and these are some of the texts that have come down to us of hermeticism uh really the really the main source of it um and this this first quote comes from one of the passages called to Asclepius. Um, and the speaker, uh, I think is Poimandres in this, in this instance, but the speaker says, man is a great miracle. Oh, Asclepius honor and reverence to such a being because he takes in the nature of a God as if he were himself a God. So right there, you see some of these big points. I mean, it's, Especially if you think about when this stuff was being reintroduced in the 11th, 12th century, when the, I mean, that's almost smack dab in the middle of the Middle Ages, when the church had such a grasp on people's thoughts and people's minds and, you know, thinking yourself as divine or important was almost, well, Thinking yourself to be divine was heretical, but uh, there was still that, you know, punitive sort of medieval um, way of thought that still is around today. Now it's saying you're a miracle. Your existence is a miracle. You are taking part in the nature of God. You are part of God. I mean, that's that's mind-blowing. That's mind-expanding and... Uh, you know, some scholars have argued that, you know, these sorts of thoughts is what led to the revival of humanism, led to the Renaissance itself, and, you know, played a huge role in things like the scientific revolution. I mean, clearly played a, a part in influencing people like Francis Bacon and Sir Isaac Newton, these great, you know, scientific thinkers, were reaching back into the alchemical lore of the past. So, you know, here we see an almost Edenic man, uh, one that must be reborn into this hermetic life. Uh, And a quote that plays off of that, this is from um, the eighth book, The Treatise on Rebirth. It's a discussion between Hermes and this character named Tot or Tat, um, sort of a weird name, but that's the weird, that's the name of the person. Hermes says, 
Even so it is, my son, when a man is born again. It is no longer a body of three dimension that he perceives, but the incorporeal. And then Tot says, Father, now that I see in mind, I see myself to be the all. I am in heaven and in earth, in water and in air. I am in beast and plants. I am a babe in the womb and one that is not yet conceived and one that has been born. I am present everywhere. So that's kind of one of these main precepts of hermeticism is that you see yourself in all of the cosmos. You have been consumed into the eternal energy. You no longer are perceiving yourself as being only limited to your body, but you have experienced a sort of apotheosis and a becoming one with uh, everything, essentially, which is, I mean, that's kind of beyond anything else that you could ever really hope for, I think. Um, and so you see here that Gnosis, Gnosis uh, the Gnosis of Hermeticum uh, is rooted in the most optimistic picture of man possible. I mean, it's so much more optimistic than what the medieval Christians were getting. Uh, you know, man is is everything. It's Man is everywhere. Uh, and I, I mean, man is how it's referred to. I should be saying humanity. You know, hum- the, the human is everything. The human is everywhere. Um, and then I want to read you, this is sort of a lengthy quote, but it's my, it, it might, this might be my favorite quote in all of literature. If then you do not make yourself equal to God, you cannot apprehend God for like is known by like leap clear of all that is corporeal and make yourself grow to a like expanse with the greatness, which is beyond all measure. Rise above all time and become eternal. Then you will apprehend God. Think for you. Think that for you too, nothing is impossible. Deem that you too are immortal, and that you are able to grasp all things in your thought, to know every craft and every science. Find your home in the haunts of every living creature. Make yourself higher than all heights and lower than all depths. Bring together in yourself all opposites of quality, heat and cold, dryness and fluidity. Think that you are everywhere at once, on land, at sea, in heaven. Think that you are not yet begotten and that you are in the womb, that you are young, that you are old, that you have died, that you are in the world beyond the grave. Grasp in your thought all this at once, all times and places, all substances and qualities and magnitudes together. Then you can apprehend God. But if you shut up your soul and your body and abase yourself and say, I know nothing, I can do nothing, I am afraid of earth and sea. I cannot mount to heaven. I know not what I was, nor what I shall be. Then what have you got to do with God? So again, we see this this personal understanding and personal relationship to yourself as a divine being. And I mean, this going beyond opposites is a, a huge part of hermeticism and alchemy and gnosticism the the coincidentia oppositorum the going beyond opposites is the the main thing and that the main opposition is uh you know the the self and god the microcosm and the macrocosm so that's that's really what hermeticism aims at doing 
And I mean, what I love about Hermeticism is it's a charmed world. It's a, it's a magical world. Once you become, you know, if you identify as a her- Hermeticist, which is what I identify as, uh, you know, you're living in, you're living in literally a magical world. You're not living in this mundane realm anymore. Um, and so the magic and gnosis, uh, the, in Hermeticism and, and in the Hermetica, they're inseparable. Okay, let's dive into alchemy a little bit. So the word alchemy is derived from the Arabic alchemia, which means the black land, referring to the dark soil of Egypt. And that's one of the lesser known things is that um, alchemy and these hermetic texts, they actually lived on in the Arabic world while they were missing in uh, missing in Europe for hundreds of years uh, they they went missing as well as well as the works of Plato and so they are reinstituted uh especially when the Moors were starting to come in through Spain these texts started being reintroduced and I mean there was a really really strong tradition of alchemy in the Arabic world at that time uh, so, you know, there's a lot of anti, um, anti-Arabic sentiment in the West, but most people don't realize that, you know, <laughs> they kind of drug us out of this elongated dark age that we are in. So we have a lot to think for them in that regard. We don't know the origins of alchemy. I mean, the, it's an ancient, ancient practice, it may have been linked to the blacksmith, is what Marseille Eliad has argued in his book, The Forge and the Crucible. Um, we can see by the 3rd century BC that they there was already a mystical and philosophical aspect to belief in alchemy. And that comes from Democritus's Physica and Mystica. And that's a main point, is that most people think that alchemy was a failed project, a failed art, and that it was only a, a chemical science aimed at transmuting lead into gold. But the the common perception nowadays is that there was a philosophical aspect to it and that alchemists were not just trying to turn metal to gold, but they were trying to turn the lead of their unenlightened mind into the gold of an enlightened being. So that was... The kind of view that was championed a lot by Carl Jung and has been picked up by, you know, most people. Now, I mean, there's there is a, a definitely a rift um, that you know so, some people think that that's not the case, but it certainly seems to be to me. Um, and you know, I wrote my math master's thesis about Carl Jung and alchemy, so it's. I mean, definitely I'm biased to the point that, yes, there is a philosophical aspect to alchemy. Um, But alchemical theory rests on three premises. The first is that all metals share a common essence that is hidden within them, and so you can transmute them from one to another. They think that gold is the purest metal, with silver being the second and there is a substance that is capable of transforming the base to pure metals, base metals to pure metals, and that's the philosopher's stone. 
And so the adept, the alchemical adept, what they must do is transform themselves into a philosopher's stone. And the philosophers say that the birds and the fishes bring the stone to us, that everybody possesses it, that it's everywhere. It's in you, it's in me, and it's, it's in all things. It's in all time and all space. So that seems very similar to that quote from the hermetic corpus that we were just reading. So it's basically the, the philosopher's stone is, is everything. It's nature, it's everything. Everything is God. And procuring the philosopher's stone is equated with the perfect knowledge of God. So that's basically what it is, I think, is that, uh, uh, you know, God is everywhere. God is everything is this perfect knowledge of the philosopher's stone. Um, and then in, in the second century, when there was this explosion of gnosis, it left an imprint on alchemical thought. So as these alchemical writers were, were, you know, working and writing through, I mean, these, these hundreds, thousands of years, the influence of Gnosticism and Hermeticism and alchemy, they were all combined into one. Uh, another thing that is thought in in alchemy is that um, there are stellar influences that that influence metals and people, and so the highest state of the soul was the identification with God, and God was identified in alchemy as gold, which and the sun, and so the sun was the visible God of the Hermetists, but it also provided a way to. Um, escape the stellar influence. So once again, I, it, this was a way of breaking through and away from these sort of draconian control measures that were in place, especially during the Middle Ages. Uh, but the question is, how is this to be achieved? This this enlightenment, this personal identification with God. Um, and how are you supposed to create the philosopher's stone, especially in a chemical aspect? Um, and so they held that Mercurius, who think Mer- Mercury is the the Roman name of Hermes, was the agent of transformation, which it was this hidden or imprisoned aspect in chemical substances. And they thought that higher substances would swallow the lower ones, so Mercurius was identified as the Ouroboros, the tail-biting serpent. Um, and so ultimately, I mean, in the alchemical process, instead of being realized in a laboratory, people realized that it took place in the body and in the consciousness of the experimenter themselves. So alchemy takes place in a spiritual category and the alchemist takes up the work of nature, which is trying to uh, work on themselves and and ex- make time go faster. Essentially, that was the the work of the alchemist was to expedite the speed of nature. And so, one of the main alchemical texts is the the oops the Emerald Tablet of Hermes. We have another text attributed to Hermes. I'm going to go ahead and read it off to you because it's very, very well known and very important to 
to introducing yourself to alchemy. It is true without lie, certain and of all truth. That which is below is like that which is above. And that which is above is like that which is below to work the miracle of the one thing. And as all things have been and came from one, thus all things were born in this unique way by adaptation or adaption. And there's a lot of different versions of the of the the um, emerald tablet. This is just the one that I have on hand right now. The sun is the father. The mon- the moon is its mother. The wind carries it in its belly. The earth is its nourisher. The father of all. The will of the whole cosmos is here. Her power is complete if she is converted in earth. You will separate the earth from the fire, the subtle from the growth, gross, carefully with great industry. It climbs from earth to the sky, and then it descends in the earth, and it receives the power of the superior things and the inferior. You will have, by this means, all the glory of the world, and all obscurity is removed from you. This is the strong power of all power, because it will conquer everything subtle and salt and everything solid. Thus the world has been created. From this will be and will follow the innumerable adaptations from which the medium is here. That is why I have been called Hermes Trismegistus, having the three parts of the philosophy of the world. That which I have said on the operation of the sun is accomplished and perfected. So, that's not my favorite version of the text and you can go line by line. Excuse me, I need to take a drink to clear my throat. But we see some of these very important hermetic concepts here. Uh, and these hermetic hermetic alchem- alchemical concepts. First is that which is above is like that which is below. As above, so below. The macrocosm and the microcosm are reflected in each other. The the nature of man is reflected in the nature of God. The nature of the human is reflected in the nature of God. That's the first precept. We have the importance of the sun and the moon, earth, fire, air, and water, the creation of the universe from the four Aristotelian elements, um, the, the spirit itself penetrating the microcosm and the macrocosm, the two coming from the single source, and the soul and Luna must be united. Um, I really like, um, you will have by this all the glory of the world and all obscurity is removed from you. I've always taken that as once you understand your God self, then this obscurity is is removed and taken away. Um so that's that's the emerald tablet. One of the precepts of alchemy is also that books are not enough. What you find in books is only for beginners. The rest is secret and communicable only by oral teaching, and that's one of the hard things about sort of unfurling these alchemical texts is they're purposefully written in a way that makes them inaccessible almost. Um, alchemy is scientific and the, the way of thinking in alchemy is, is scientific, but unlike modern science, alchemy hopes that through meditation, you can bring your soul and your spirit directly into 
a vision of the creative process and towards what Jung would call psychic wholeness. So, I mean, whenever you look through these, what the alchemists are saying, definitely meditation played a, a huge part in this achievement of God knowledge. And I think that a lot of people would agree with that. Um, even outside of an alchemical context, just the importance of, of meditation just in general. Um, and so some of these takeaways is, you know, they used to think that fate controls the body, but with alchemy and these ways of thinking, human, the human now has the power to rise above the sphere of the zodiacal control. So hermetic man is forever breaking free from these limiting constraints, which is one of the reasons I'm drawn to it. Let's talk a little bit about this hermetic renaissance that occurred during the 1500s. Um, and maybe I've gotten a little bit of my dating. I've been saying 11 and 12th centuries. That's just what I remembered. Um... I thought that that's when Marsilio Ficino had been uh, re-translating these texts, but my notes actually have a different date. So, um, around 1484, after the Battle of Bosworth, which is where uh, Richard III met his timely demise, there was a group of Florentine Neoplatonists that were resurrecting the Hermetica. Two of the big ones were Giovanni Pico della Mirandola and Marsilio Ficino. Um, and basically, uh, Cosimo de Medici had Ficino retranslate the Hermetic corpus before. Plato. So they got Plato's Republic and the Corpus Hermeticum, and that this is how importantly they're viewed is that Medici wanted the the Plato the works of Hermes to be translated first because he was going to die soon. He Ficino did get it translated before his death. Um, a lot of what what I've been reading for this book or for this podcast has been this book, uh, The Golden Builders by Tobias Churton. I've been using this and Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition, which is written by uh, the Dame Francis Yates, who was, like I said, kind of the original works. But uh, Churton, he provides a really interesting and sort of forgotten instance of this Hermetic Renaissance when he talks about uh, a character named Giovanni Mercurio da Correggio, who rode into Rome on, um, I believe it was Easter Sunday. Let's see if it says um, Palm Sunday, and he he rode in wearing a a crown of thorns with a, a sign above him atop a white ass that said. Um, uh, this is my son Poimandres, whom I have chosen, which is from the Hermetic text. Very similar to, uh, you know, this is my son Jesus, who I've chosen. I'm not as good as at honestly quoting the Bible as I am quoting Hermetic literature. Um, but he goes around. He he he's handing out papers whose subject is rebirth, uh, or in the French Renaissance. 
Um, and so people who are, are unfamiliar with Hermeticism don't probably know how important it played in the Renaissance. But this is one of the, the texts that he was sending around comes from the first book of the, Her- the Corpus Hermeticum. Who are you, Hermes said. I, said he, am Poimandres, the authentic mind, the noose. I want to know, said I, the things that are, and understand their nature, and get knowledge, gnosis, of God. These, I said, are the things of which I want to hear. He answered, I know what you wish, for indeed I am with you everywhere. Keep in mind all that you will learn, and I will teach you. Sounds very similar to a lot of the, the promises of the Bible. Um, and again, it's, it's similar teachings, but just in a total, totally different context, really. So the, the belief in Hermeticism is that you could free yourself through the art of inner ascension. So I just thought that kind of stood out to me in my reading. Let's move on to a discussion of Gnosticism. So like I said, in 1945, the so-called Nag Hammadi Library was found by a Bedouin farmer in Egypt. And this library, these, I mean, it, it wasn't like a library in the traditional sense that you would think of, but it was these texts that were hidden inside of glasses and vases was found by this farmer whose name coincidentally was Muhammad Ali. Now, and they can, they contained these lost Gnostic Gospels, uh, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip. Tobias Churton, who wrote that book, The Golden Builders, he made a documentary in the 80s called The Gnostics, and they actually interview this Bedouin farmer who was a Muslim, and he thought that he actually would he he thought that the these containers were going to have gin genies inside of them and you know these these scholars that went and found him they were like you're huge you're famous you're you're changing the outlook of religion and for your video watchers I've got a a surprise guest my cat right now which is inevitable throughout the podcast she doesn't like it when I close the door, so she's just going to hop on my lap and hang out, I guess. Um, and this guy, he was like, yeah, we took some of what we found and we literally used it to heat our oven to cook bread that night. I'm mad that I found the texts. I think that they're evil. And part of the the politics of that area was between the, the Coptic church, which is the Orthodox uh, Egyptian church and the local Muslims who were kind of the lower class in that area. And the, the Coptics, the, the, uh, to my understanding, these Gnostic gospels were written in a, co- a Coptic language. So it was just jarring to me because in my religion and history and archaeology classes in school, I always heard about the discovery of the Nag Hammadi library and how it was found by a Bedouin, but I never got his perspective. So I found it very interesting, but I wanted to talk about the gospel of Thomas because I love it. I mean, it's, it's basically a dialogue between 
uh, Didymus Thomas, Doubting Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus, and Jesus, and, well, it's not really a dialogue, it's, ma- it's mainly just the sayings of Jesus to Thomas. And, I mean, it's an apocryphal text. It's not accepted as the, a mainstream text by the church, and, you know, when, when you hear them talk, they say, well, there is a lot of other people writing, but there's only four Gospels. But the Gospel of Thomas is the Gnostic text. It's it's for the Gnostic seeker, and it describes a sort of numinous experience, which, like I, we said, is, um, you know, this this elevated sort of religious experience. And the Gospel of Thomas says that, you know, if you heed these words, you will not experience death, which is very similar to the Corpus Hermeticum and the these Hermetic beliefs. And so I'm just going to kind of read off some of the quotes that always stood out to me. The first time I read it was in a mysticism class in college, and it had a pretty profound effect on me. One, one quote is, if you bring forth what is within you, Let me see if I'm getting this right. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. Yes. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. So it's, you know, if you don't bring this, what you really are out, it's going to destroy you. And I've, I mean, that's something that I've found to be very true in my life. Um, Again, it's, there's a, a disputation, a disputing of the scandalous uh, the dogma it was re- of the church. It was regarded as being scandalously radical. Um, and in Gnosticism, they they try and tackle that question of the timeless question: How does a good God make a bad world? And there's a really interesting Gnostic cosmology where the creation myth is that uh, this world is actually created by what's called the Demiurge and is policed what are, by what are called Archons. Um, and so this Demiurge is not a title of glory. It's actually, it's not the highest God. So this world is actually like a prison for the soul. And the the God beyond that is is the ultimate God, but the Demiurge is not the ultimate God. And so the Demiurge is more like the God of the Old Testament, especially. Um, So I've always thought that that was kind of interesting. I'm still trying to wrap my head about what I think about it, but it's interesting one the less, nonetheless. Um, You know, it used to be that you couldn't be one with the infinite and the Gnostics actually flip it and say that you actually are one with the infinite. And so a Gnostic is really someone who realize, realizes what they are. They've had an inner experience and have come to understand the unknown God. They've, they've pulled out what it is within them. Gnostics also used women icons and gave a much higher status to women. So that was another reason that you might want to, to like it. Uh, as opposed to, you know, this historical subjugation of women, which is at the very core of Christianity. Another quote I love is, there is light existing within a person of light, and it enlightens the whole world. If it does not enlighten, that person is in darkness. 
Um, and this kind of reminded me of the Paracelsian star in man. And Paracelsus was another one of these figures who took up the, the traditions of hermeticism and alchemy and played a, a giant role. Uh, another great quote from the Gospel of Thomas is, He who has known the world has found a corpse, and he who has found a corpse, the world is not worthy of him. And to me, that, I mean, obviously that Jesus speaks in parables only in the Gospel of Thomas. But what that has always meant to me is that you become a corpse by undergoing the philosophical death. Dying before you die, if you go back to um, our episode about the Eleusinian mysteries and understanding that you're just atoms floating in this cosmic realm and that you're tied into everything. That's how you become a corpse. Um, And then lastly, this one is an interesting one. Jesus says, perhaps men think that I am come to cast peace upon the world and they do not know that I am come to cast dissensions upon the earth, fire, sword, and war. So, you know, there's always this really, you know, light and love sort of view around Jesus, but he was really you know, throwing everything for a loop and calling out people's preconceptions. And um, the the Gnostic Jesus is very different from the Jesus of the Bible. It's one that I like more, honestly. So that's it for today's episode. Hermeticism, Gnosticism, and alchemy have certainly played an important, if not decisive, role in the advancement of Western thought. Today, they serve as a provocative alternative to the dogmatic teachings of religion and offer a course to personal gnosis that for seekers often proves to be a much deeper route. Thanks for listening. See you next time.